Kids always think they're coming into a story at the beginning, when usually they're coming in at the end. Joe Hill, Lock and Key. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast focusing on the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie. And once again, filling in for Rachel, I'm Devin. Today we're talking graphic novels on this episode of Books in the Freezer. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite, Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash booksinthefreezer. Happy listening! Some argue horror is the most at home in a medium that makes use of all the senses. Horror fiction is capable of telling bone-chilling tales and conveying eerie feelings of dread within an immersed reader, but there's just something intangible about horror presented in a visual or auditory medium that can add to that experience. We see this with the prominence of horror movies, with full-cast audio productions, and with our topic for today, graphic novels. So, speaking of graphic novels... What do you think it is about them that really makes them a good conduit for horror? And what's different about them as opposed to a novel? The thing with graphic novels is being more of a a visual experience, more so than just reading the written word. If you're reading a novel, it's up to the author to keep you invested, to keep you in that world using nothing but his descriptions and trusting that your mind is creating the images for yourself and, and losing yourself within them. With graphic novels, you have the images right in front of you. It's it's much easier to become immersed within the story and invested in what's going on. So I think it, it helps get you into the story to begin with. No, I agree. It definitely creates like the set atmosphere that the the author and illustrator want when you read a graphic novel. Like you know what the tone of the story is just you could honestly sometimes go just off of the artwork and the color palette that's being used. Yeah, it's kind of like with the graphic novel 30 Days of Night. Mm -hmm. It's not just the dialogue and the plot and the characters that drives the narrative. It's the actual visualizations of what's happening. 30 Days of Night takes place in Alaska where the sun is gone down for 30 days and then the town is infested with vampires. In the visuals of that original graphic novel, all the panels are fairly blurred together and the the colors used are very dreary. There's no bright colors except for the blood red and such like this, so... It gives off, like you said, the tone and and the overall feel for the story without using the words like you would have to if you were writing prose. Definitely. And I mean, that can work for some people and maybe not be, (laughs) and maybe not so much so for others. (laughs) I take it you weren't a fan of 30 Days of Night. I was not. 
I was sad because I went into this and I love vampires. So like vampires like ambushing a small like Alaskan town was amazing and it sounded amazing. But the artwork in the original run was so hard to decipher and I think it was too dark. Like I understand that it's dark. I get it. But I was hurting my eyes trying to figure (laughs) out what was happening in the pictures and I couldn't tell people apart. And I was just like, it's a little much. Chill out on the the darkness. <laughs> no, see, no, that, no, that's fair. That's that is fair. And I want to defend this this graphic novel. I really want to defend it for being good because it is fairly significant. Um, it's one of the earlier graphic novels in horror, and it produced a movie, got a lot of attention for this this medium. But you're right. Like as as beautiful to me, I find the artwork, and I was a fan of the artwork. Um. As appropriate as it was, the story I didn't find all that great. But within it, there's these flashes of brilliance. Like there's these certain panels you'll see. Um, one of the characters like just had a bar talking about eating his meat raw, and like the the text used the font and the way the profile looks. It's it just conveys such a a great kind of scene in just a single picture that it it really speaks to how powerful graphic novels can be for presenting horror. Even if they're in a, a subpar story, <laughs> admittedly, like 30 Days of Night. Which I think might be an unpopular opinion. So we may want to lay low after this gets out. <laughs> yeah. And, okay, that, that's true. Yes. <laughs> I will say, though, because in preparation for this, I read the new edition that came out. Uh, it was pro- it was published in September of this year. Mm-hmm. It was like a reimagining that Niles did. And the artwork is a lot more clear, a lot more regular you'd find in a regular comic book and i was kind of bored there's some really cool like fight scenes and really visual kind of gore at the end of it but taking away that dreary and blurry kind of aesthetic really took a lot away from the story even you know whether i liked it or not so again it goes back to the importance of of the visual side of this particular medium when you're talking about horror storytelling so another big part of graphic novels is obviously dialogue because you're having a story that is driven mostly by dialogue and I think there's kind of good and bad that can come of it something that I love in horror graphic novels that works really well I mean especially when you think of like superhero type stories is I love a good classic villain monologue with a panel of like a close-up evil like sinister grin you know, just giving a good old villain monologue, I think just works really well in a graphic novel. But what I don't love about dialogue-driven stories is when there's clunky exposition through dialogue. And I find that a lot like in the beginning of graphic novels when everyone is establishing relationship and they're like, well, of course you would do that because you're the CEO of this very successful company. You know, conversations that people would not have. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're talking about the graphic novel equivalent of the as you know Bob. Yeah. Where like you're just expositing this information that characters wouldn't say because everybody already knows it. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, Oh hi, Steph, how how's that podcast that you are the host of that you <laughs> you run with your friend Rachel? Yeah. Like, why would someone say that to you? Why are you talking like, like that? That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Graphic novels generally, I find, uh, can avoid that trap because they they have a lot more ease of getting rid of using that in dialogue because they can pop it up in little info boxes. But even then, it's it's still down to being a good storyteller to not 
you know, depend on that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of graphic novels do it well, but I'm saying like when I haven't enjoyed graphic novels, I think clunky exposition has been a part of it. (laughs) I feel like you have a graphic novel in mind when you're thinking this. I don't don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought we were going to move away from Niles in 30 days. Jeez. Yeah, I'm trying not to spill too much tea. And so unusual episodes, we talk about movies that relate to the topic that we are discussing. So on that, Devin, do you know any good movies that are based on horror graphic novels? (laughs) (laughs) Not that we've mentioned any at all. No, and I don't know if I should go too far into this because literally two of the three recommendations we're going to make have been made into uh, movies. Uh, one of which was basically my favorite movie for like the first half of my life. So, um, but yeah, uh, graphic novels are rife with um, adaptations. Not necessarily all horror, but I mean, um, Three Hundred was a graphic novel. Um, Sin City; those are great movies. They're based on Frank Miller graphic novels. Um, you have The Watchmen. Mm-hmm. It's that's a comic book kind of thing, but they're superheroes. But that's that's dark and gritty and and somewhat depressing it's kind of horrible especially with the uh the way the narrative turns at the end of it um that's an alan moore graphic novel mm-hmm. i think graphic novels are fine but i think you 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 know you're watching an adaptation of a graphic novel instead of a book because they all generally tend to be a lot more visual a lot more stylized yeah Zack snyder stylized yes not always i guess but he's he's one yeah no exactly that's that's stylized is the word i was thinking of there where it's the aesthetics of how they frame the shots is as important as the dialogue or the acting or or anything else. Oh, V for Vendetta was a graphic novel, wasn't it? Yes, V for Vendetta was also Alan Moore. Oh, yeah. Um, and some that are... Uh, one that I'm excited about that isn't out yet is Joe Hill's Lock and Key is getting an upcoming adaptation. So I am absolutely jacked for that. Lock and Key is how I found Joe Hill to begin with, so it has a special place in my heart. Really? That's unusual. <laughs> it absolutely is. That's an unusual Joe Hill path to get into. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I was in my local game shop, mm-hmm. and I was looking just at comics and board games and such, and I saw this graphic novel that said, Welcome to Lovecraft. I was like, oh, awesome. This is a Lovecraftian graphic novel. Yeah, I'm going to get this. Sure. Open it up, read it through. I'm like, okay. This is a good, cool series. I don't know what's going on with these keys. I don't know what's got to do with Lovecraft. And then I get like three quarters of the way through and realize, oh, Lovecraft is the town. This is called Lock and Key. Whoops. But I loved it. And I got every volume now. Yeah, I read the first volume for the Books in the Freezer readathon. And I read it so fast. I was immediately sucked in. And it was a lot darker than I thought it would be. Yeah, same here. Uh, mostly because I really, I went in completely blind. So I didn't know the storyline. I didn't know what it was that drove the family to relocate to this new house. I was just <laughs> like, oh, do to do Like American family wants a fresh start, wants to get away from the city. I'm like, oh, there's a little something else driving them there in this iteration <laughs> of that story. <laughs> Yeah, same here. I, was, I had no idea what it was. I thought it was a Lovecraft kind of story. And that's when I found out who Joe Hill was, learned about his uh, family lineage. Mm, as we all did. <laughs> learned about his novels. Yeah. And that's the only, well, I got mad respect for him too. Like, who who wants to be a writer and their father is Stephen King and doesn't want to at least somewhat draw upon that name? Mm. <laughs> like, that's just an easy book deal. That's because his name would be Joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Were you kidding or joking? Oh, 
Okay, that's bad. Um, (laughs) Are we going to need to get a soundboard? (laughs) Oh, God. Rachel's going to kill me when she gets back of what I did to her podcast. (laughs) So I am excited to dive into this topic. This is actually a topic that was recommended by one of our patrons, Roger. You can find him over at Roger underscore reads on Instagram. And I'm really excited because there was a lot to choose from. And like Devin and I were talking about, there are a lot of great horror graphic novels. So here's a few that we're excited about, and we're going to talk about this episode. All right, so let's talk book recommendations. Uh, I'll go first. I want to talk about The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. This was written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, and Robert Hack did the illustrations. So the synopsis for this is on Sabrina Spellman's 16th birthday, she's at a crossroads. Uh, She's got a choice between an unearthly destiny and her mortal boyfriend, Harvey. But Madam Satan arrives in Greendale unannounced and with a deadly plan. So this is a take on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I will say this is a much darker iteration of that. By the time this episode is released, the Netflix series that is based on this graphic novel will have already been released. And I think there's been uh, teasers and trailers released that kind of get the tone set. So I think if you've seen those, you would know what I'm talking about. Um, Originally, Sabrina was based in the kind of Archie comics universe. But like I mentioned, this is kind of a a darker retelling from the same person that did the afterlife with Archie comics, which was, you know, a much darker iteration of the Archie characters. And there is actually a bit of crossover in this story. Uh, So there's a few similarities with the TV show, but I will say not a whole lot, especially as I mentioned, tonally a lot darker. Um, It's not as like kooky and silly. She does live with her two aunts. Uh, Her mother was immortal. She does have a talking black cat named Salem, who is funny. You know, she does the whole like levitating when she sleeps thing. You know, she has a boyfriend named Harvey. So I will say this one has a lot more like occultism. Like I would flat out say like they're Satanists. It's not as light and airy. I'm watching the original show right now. And, you know, like when they have problems, they appeal to like the witch's council and they walk into their linen closet and like end up in this light blue room and it's very kooky and funny. And this is more like, you know, we got to go to the woods and like maybe sacrifice a goat. Like it's a little, it goes there. I absolutely loved this. I really liked that it was a period piece. This takes place in the 1960s. And we are dealing with Sabrina and her pull between these two worlds, between her, you know, her school life and her life as a witch. And they're both equally as important to her. And it is just so good. I gave this book five stars. Like, I absolutely loved it. I will say this is fridge or freezer. There is a lot of blood. (laughs) Like I said, not for everyone. It's definitely not your childhood, you know, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But I thought it was fantastic. And I listened to an interview with uh, one of the showrunners, and they did say that the new series is going to veer quite a bit from the graphic novel. So if you've read the graphic novel and you don't want to watch the show because it's going to be the exact same thing, it's not. Or if you've recently watched the show and you don't want to read the graphic novel because you're worried it's going to be the same thing. One of the writers on the show said that it veers quite a bit from it. 
so it's going to take the whole uh, like Walking Dead route, where it's similar. It's an adaptation, obviously, but they do their own separate storylines while being connected. I think kind of so, because in the commercial, I definitely saw that there was like a Madam Satan character. So I'm thinking like that storyline is going to be there, but maybe it's going to take a different way. I mean, just I guess like The Walking Dead does, where there are similar characters. So that was The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. That was written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and illustrator Robert Hack. The first one I'm going to talk about is The Crow by James O'Barr. Uh, it's a no- graphic novel that came out in 1989, and it was the basis for the uh, 1994 movie adaptation starring Brandon Lee. It follows the story of Eric Draven, um, after him and his girlfriend Shelley Webster were mercilessly attacked and murdered by a common street gang on the side of the road, um, Eric is brought back from death to the land of the living to enact his revenge on each of them uh, one by one. All the while, each encounter with a gang member is uh, separated and divided uh, by scenes of Eric in his home, kind of lamenting the memory of him and his him and Shelley and and the pain he goes through of his loss. The story itself of the the graphic novel is somewhat straightforward, uh, but it's it's there's mo- it's multifaceted. Uh, there's a lot more to it than just a straight up guy comes back and gets revenge on the people that killed him and his girlfriend. Obar wrote this while dealing with uh, some incredibly personal issues and loss of his own, and this story was his way of getting through his grief. So the crow was like the literal manifestation of what he was going through and how he felt about it there are graphic images of violence and some full nudity in this so there is even one scene for for those that are sensitive to uh to certain types of violence there is a scene where one of the gang members and a couple of his cronies are physically assaulting a guy with down syndrome and they literally say that in a dialogue again it's not really for the faint of heart in that regard but the artwork in this it's absolutely stunning. Makes it worth your time seeing him and and Shelly like embracing and talking about it, and then switching immediately back to him pistol whipping one of the the gangsters and just being this witty, unstoppable vehicle of vengeance. As far as the rating goes, I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's too scary or horror ish. So I would call it room temperature. But again, the the violence in this is incredibly violent. Um, and it really it pulls no punches in that regard. It isn't a scary story per se, but it can really make you think about you know loss, grief, and and how we deal with it. Sounds really interesting. I might want to pick this up. So this is I'm guessing a standalone. Uh, it was released, I believe, over five or six parts over a period of time. But yeah, you, there's a, a buying up a special edition now that has actually an additional scene that Obar did after the fact. Um, so yeah, you could buy it as just a standalone graphic novel. I've never seen The Crow. Going into this, I only knew two things about The Crow. One, that Brandon Lee died during filming. And two, that it is Dwight Schrute's favorite movie of all time. (laughs) You're really going to punish me for not watching The Office, aren't you? You can't guest host this podcast and not expect an (laughs) office ref. But but yes, you're right. Brandon Lee did die. It was The Crow is, uh, like I said, he's invincible. He rip bullets into him left and right and he's he's fine because he's basically undead during one of the scenes while filming the movie uh, apparently through some mishap one of the bullets was replaced the blanks were replaced with a real one and brandon lee was shot dead on the set so yeah that's that's a story that kind of lingers with regard to the movie yeah it's really tragic it is he was such he was a really great actor if you watch some of the other things he did it sounds awful to say that i love stories about grief but i do love stories that really deal with raw emotion and so i really tend to gravitate to stories about uh, 
a grief and loss. And so this might be one I have to pick up. So my next recommend is Nailbiter, Volume 1, There Will Be Blood by Joshua Williamson and Mike Henderson is the artist. So the synopsis for this is Buckaroo, Oregon, is home to 16 of the most vile serial killers. NSA agent Nicholas Filch needs to team up with one of them, Nailbiter Warren, in order to find his fellow agent. Uh, This was marketed as a mix of Seven and Twin Peaks. (laughs) Okay. I get the Seven part, and we'll get into that. So (laughs) this is really dark. I feel like I'm going to say that about all the graphic novels, so I'm just going to get that one out of the way. It's real dark. (laughs) But my favorite part of this is there's 16 serial killers that hail from the town of Buckaroo. So my favorite part is we get a rundown of all the serial killers and their nicknames and their MOs. And so the the titular one, Nailbiter, what he would do is he would target women who bit their nails and kidnap them and wait until their nails grew back and then chew their fingernails to the bone before ultimately killing them. What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm reading this for the first time. What did you just... Um, that's that's intense. Yeah, it's it's real intense. I mean, some of them are funny. Like, there's a female serial killer who would like kill men that whistled at her, or like cat called her. So part of me was like, yeah, but also no. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I also really liked the character work in this. So Nicholas Filch is kind of in Buckaroo to find his uh, fellow agent who he hasn't seen. And, you know, he has to team up with this serial killer and he doesn't quite know how to how to deal with that. You as the reader also kind of don't know who to trust. Everyone's operating on shades of gray. Everyone is kind of weird and like skeezy and like not straightforward and like everyone in this town is a little messed up so i would definitely recommend this one to people who like serial killer stories and two if you like stories about like places that could be evil uh so i'm thinking of like castle rock and stuff like that which i guess maybe is where the twin Peaks stuff would come in but i think twin peaks to me is a lot more like worky <laughs> yeah it's, it's almost satire yeah almost. like i'm like you know dale cooper and his and his coffee <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh i will say not as lighthearted and kooky but it was really good and i also do love like good like crime stories you're trying to say this is not the lighthearted version but the town is called buckaroo all right so the town is called buckaroo <laughs> <laughs> like, i'm sorry i know well i was reading this and my husband was like oh let me guess the story is such a nail biter oh i so should have said that too damn <laughs> So Devin, if you were a serial killer, what would your MO be? I refuse to answer that on the grounds of being incriminate me later in life. You know what I would do? I would definitely make sure you were dead and then cut off the fingertips and eyes so they couldn't identify you. And they'd call me the overkill killer. I'm a little scared at the moment. When's Rachel coming back? <laughs> and that's the second office reference I have wedged into this episode. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like you really thought of it this, but never mind. <laughs> All right, so I'm not allowed back on the show ever until I finish The Office. Understood. But I really enjoyed this. And then closer to the end of the book, you find out more about Nicholas as a character and that maybe he's got a little darkness in him himself. And this is a seven book series. So far, I have only read book one, but I absolutely loved it. I think I also rated this one five stars. I'm putting this in the fridge. It's it's fairly gory and dark. If you love crime... You love serial killers. 
characters who work in shades of gray and evil places, I would definitely recommend Nailbiter. Uh, volume one is called There Will Be Blood by Joshua Williamson and artist Mike Henderson. All right. Uh, my next pick. Uh, this one is kind of one I think that one of us needed to say, just again, based on where it falls within the time frame of graphic novels and the horror genre as a whole. Um, and this is From Hell by Alan Moore. From Hell is a fictional account based on the 1976 novel Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Um, if you've read that novel, you're familiar with it. The theory that Jack the Ripper, who killed five prostitutes in uh, 1889, one of the first serial killers ever, this is a conspiracy that theorizes that uh, Jack was actually working as a member of the Freemasons to cover up a birth of an illegitimate heir to the throne of England. Of course, since that novel has been published, the theory has been debunked, but uh, I still think it makes for an interesting and intriguing story, uh, especially when told from someone like Alan Moore, who, like we mentioned earlier, is the mind behind Watchmen and uh, V for Vendetta and one of the best Batman series, uh, The Killing Joke. So my thoughts on From Hell is that this is one of the earliest um, real well-known graphic novels in the horror genre. So we would be remiss not to at least mention it on this podcast. As far as graphic novels go, um, it is a pretty dense read. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts, uh, there's a lot of dialogue, and a lot of the dialogue is very vague and misleading intentionally because there's this really like cloak and dagger kind of way that people interact with each other. Um, it's not so much a mystery because you do see like the side of the killer, the side of um, Detective Aberline. So it's nothing, you're not wondering who the killer is or stuff like that, but it does kind of paint this image of 1889 London where everyone's terrified of this Jack the Ripper. It's, it is more of a crime thriller than a straight up horror. Even though it isn't necessarily paranormal in nature, I think the, similar to The Crow that, and 30 Days of Night actually, that the artwork uh, itself and the grittiness of Moore's 1889 London um, is an aesthetic that's going to stick with you even after you finish reading the book. It's got a really interesting graphic style to it, which makes it worthwhile as a recommendation. Um, and the story is engaging. I don't think it's very scary per se, because like I said, you do see both sides for most of it, but it is an interesting story and it's the history behind it is terrifying. Some of these theories about Jack the Ripper, um, they, they will keep you up at night. So I would, I would say it's room temperature. Um, it's a good starting point to get you into reading about Jack the Ripper himself. And there's a lot of freezer reading if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Do you think this is a good starting place for Alan Moore? If you've never read anything by him and you are an avid horror fan, yes. It's not a bad place to start. Um, truth be told, if you were just blind, uh, not knowing anything about him, Watchmen or maybe V for Veneta might be better. But again, with its ties to, to Jack the Ripper and just horror and suspense and all this stuff, it's not a bad place to start. So the last book I'm going to talk about is Hack Slash by Tim Seeley. And there is a couple of illustrators on this one. But the story for this is Cassie Hack is a badass who comes from tragedy. She travels and kills, quote, slashers with her disfigured bodyguard. Vlad. A lot of people said this was very similar to like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I thought she had kind of a Jessica Jones kind of vibe, just kind of like this dark gothy girl who's on like a, a vigilante kind of mission. Um, in this book series, the quote unquote slashers are actually undead killers that are 
raised from the dead with kind of a mission to avenge the people that killed them. Like they were wrongly killed or like they feel like they need to enact revenge. And so this duo shows up to put them down. I'm going to say this is obviously for people who are fans of slasher stories. In this book, there's a few separate kind of self-contained stories. So Cassie and Vlad like show up to a town. There's this slasher. They put him down. Happy ending. Next chapter is like another town. They show up, fix this problem. So it's really good if you like kind of that, to use a TV term, like a monster of the week setup. And this is especially the case in the first book. I have not continued on with the series so far. I will say one thing I didn't love was how over-sexualized all of the women were, including Cassie herself, like to a cartoonish degree. I know we're talking about graphic novels, so... But it is like every woman, one, is wearing either a miniskirt or shorts, like super low and they're super short and is wearing like a crop top and has like a ridiculous amount of cleavage. I know 2004 was a different time and we are more woke as a society now. And I also understand that people who like slashers, you know, that goes hand in hand with the genre. Like I know, but it's a lot. Like there's even a religious character and she's wearing this like really tiny plaid skirt and has like a button up white shirt that's like popping open. And I'm like, seriously, <laughs> like what is this? Other than that, it was a lot of fun. Like, I don't know. I like that whole like, we're going to put down the bad guys. And Cassie is a really good character. I think throughout the stories, you do notice she has more depth and she, you know, has an origin story that comes from trauma. And you see her kind of almost using this vigilanteism as a way to not participate in society because she doesn't know how to fit in. And she's always viewed herself as an outsider. And it's really interesting to see that as part of her as a character. So I really enjoyed that, that they definitely took the time to make her like a person that has issues. So I would put this in the fridge. There is a lot of blood, but I would say the tone is, it's almost in a campy sort of way. I would, this is not one that I'm like, oh man, it's like super dark. Um, it's, it's very bloody. A lot of people die and things happen, but I would say it's fun. It's a fun time. So again, that was Hackslash by Tim Seeley. So my last pick is actually not technically a graphic novel. It's a graphic collection of short stories um, of manga, which I'm hoping you guys don't uh, consider to be cheating. I couldn't talk about graphic novels and not find a way to talk about Junji Ito. Uzumaki is the title that most people will know him for. It is a full-length graphic novel um, about the this town that's obsessed with spirals that sounds really weird but i assure you it's a terrifying read the recommendation i want to give is for shiver which is a collection of his best short stories well i think best in his opinion because i'm pretty sure it's curated by himself um what this is it's uh nine uh short stories that have been published elsewhere with a bonus unpublished one that uh, Junji wrote throughout his career. And all of them have commentary before and after them with him telling us what he was thinking when he wrote this and how he felt about it and where these certain elements came from. So there's a lot of insight. If you're a fan of Junji Ito already, it's definitely a must have to get. One of my favorite Ito stories ever is in this collection, uh, The Hanging Blimp. Basically, this this character, this idol dies, and all of a sudden people start seeing her giant head floating in the sky, and 
you know what? I can't go further into it <laughs> because Ito's work, specifically short stuff, is really the best when you go in blind because most of them take such sharp turns. He tells stories much differently than anybody I've ever encountered in the horror genre in, of any nationality. But I highly recommend The Hanging Blimp and Marionette Mansion. Two of them are amazing. Ito himself is an uncrowned master of horror. Like, if you know anything about Japanese manga and you read dark fiction, you probably already know who Ito is. I, I really want to go into more with it, but Ito literally is really best consumed without any kind of preface of the stories themselves, uh, especially short stories. So we should go into it blind. Yeah, exactly. Um, There is, if you don't want to, you know, pick up the collection itself just based on the recommendation um within my chilling obsessions there's a place you can go to get a taste of ito to see if he's your style um as far as rating goes for 90 percent of ito's work i would actually put it in the freezer and that's not a rating i give lightly um i don't necessarily get afraid by horror fiction in any medium for the most part not to try and pat myself on the back or anything but i feel like i'm desensitized from horror but yeah ito is one of the most psychologically disturbing writers i've ever encountered whether it be manga film uh prose in horror in general he's one of my favorite producers he's one of my favorite minds that is going today he's definitely someone on my tbr i think especially after rachel talked about the spiral one uzumaki uzumaki yeah that's the one he's mostly known for in the West. He's got so many other good stuff. So we'll have to check him out. We may be getting more into that in a future episode. So that was Shiver, a short story collection by Junji Ito. All right, let's talk chilling obsessions. I want to go first <laughs> because last night I finished The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. All amazing 10 episodes. So this is a modern take on the Shirley Jackson novel by director Mike Flanagan, who you might know from Hush or Gerald's Game, and both of his leading women from those movies are in this show. So this follows the five Crane siblings as they deal with how Hill House has affected their lives, especially after their sister Nell is really having a hard time dealing with things. I'll say there's not much similarity between the book and the show other than character names and that Hill House exists. And well, in this universe, the book, The Haunting of Hill House exists and is actually written by one of the siblings. And so the show opens up with the opening line and you do get quotes from the book scattered throughout the show. If you've read the book, you know that you can catch going in. I thought this was so well done. This just made me feel the whole range of emotions. I, first of all, I'm a sucker for like anytime there's a story with like adult siblings dealing with their drama, like in any genre. <laughs> I mean, I am a sucker for like, oh, someone's getting married. All of the adult siblings have to get together at their childhood home and like deal with their drama. Like give me a family stone and like in August, Osage County, like any day of the week. <laughs> so I was here for that. I will say I was one of those people that was kind of snotty going into it because I saw the trailer and I saw that it was not going to be faithful to the book. I did have pretty low expectations and I was like, "Ugh, let's see what Hollywood has done to my beloved Shirley Jackson. And I was blown away. First of all, there's some great cinematography, especially in episode six. There's like, it just looks like these great uninterrupted shots and 
I'm I mean I'm not a film major I'm not someone who like notices stuff like that but it was just amazing like I was blown away also fun there's hidden ghosts in the background of every episode I think if you go to their social media they'll say like how many ghosts are hidden in each episode so if you want to look at that and try to find those while you're watching it it's really good this gave me great characters and it gave me so many feelings and it had just a great atmosphere all throughout I cried multiple times like all the feelings <laughs> I 100% recommend it wow okay I did not know about the ghosts that's that's actually really cool it's- my sister pointed it out she's like oh did you see like the one hiding in the background in this frame and I said like what are you talking about we were on episode three and then on their social media they're like did you guys spot all the ghosts in all these episodes and I was like what no <laughs> So that was fun to kind of like look at and point out. But now, okay, here's here's the question, because I've given you and Rachel enough crap for not seeing Halloween, not seeing Nightmare on Elm Street and all that stuff. You can give me crap for this. I haven't read The Haunting of Hill House. With that in mind, do you think that this is a just a good like haunted house story and they're just using the name Haunting of Hill House to get notoriety? Or is this just a new take on Shirley Jackson's story. Like It's hard to say. I think they definitely get the mood. And I think one of the big themes in The Haunting of Hill House is like loneliness and isolation. And they do get that with a lot of the characters. I would say, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, it's so much more <laughs> than a haunted house story. But it like, it really is. Because like, my husband came home and caught me watching the finale and he's like, so who's the villain in this? And I'm like, it's so complicated. I can't even begin <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> you can't come in in episode 10 and ask me that right now as I'm saying that like through tears. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think you need to read the book at all. Actually, I will say I'm kind of worried about people reading the book after seeing this because the book is very quiet like it's a very subtle very psychological just like very slow moving heavy atmosphere type of story okay yeah you don't need to have read it to go into it there's just like nods to it okay but but there is enough let's say tonally and and atmospherically to still say that haunting hill house is still haunting of hill house is just a new Mm -hmm. version definitely okay but i will be reading the book first so it'll be a while before i can watch this show but I look forward to it. I'm going to need to hear what you think of it. And then since we're being a little more negative on this show, can I talk about something I like was not <laughs> that into? What should we call this? Should we call this like tepid disappointments? <laughs> like lukewarm letdowns? Lukewarm letdown. I like that. <laughs> the alliteration. Okay. So I saw Into the Dark on Hulu and I will say I didn't love it. But I saw a lot of people posted that they did like it. I don't know. It wasn't for me. So this is going to be a series on Hulu where they release kind of a feature length uh, episode every month. And it's going to be themed around the holiday of that month. So, you know, obviously they dropped one in October. It was Halloween themes. Next month is going to be like a Thanksgiving or November is going to be a Thanksgiving. December is going to be Christmas, January, New Year's. You know, you get the idea. Um So I watched this one and maybe now I'm more aware of what the tone is going to be because I think I expected it to be a lot darker. This is Blumhouse and I thought it seemed a little campy for me. I did not like the main villain. I thought he was a little too cartoonish in the beginning and 
I don't know. I think something also about the set design kind of reminded me of like a, a CW, <laughs> like a really dark episode of like Pretty Little Liars Ooh. or something. Is that awful? How, how do you go from Blumhouse to CW? Oh, that hurts my heart to hear. I'm sorry. I just, I was not a fan of it. And then I did not like the ending. Like this just did not work for me. So, um, but I know like a couple people like posting that they really enjoyed it. So maybe now that I kind of know what the tone is going to be and that it's not going to be maybe as dark as I thought it would be, I'll keep that in mind. I mean, it is going to be like holiday themed horror throughout the year. So maybe they were going with that. But I don't know. It wasn't my bag. So sorry, everyone. Yeah. I mean, I will keep watching it. I will watch all of them as they come out. It's not going to stop me. Okay, so they're holiday themed, but are they are they horror? Like, are they going to be scary? Or was this one just a horror kind of thing because it's Halloween? No, they're all going to be horror. Okay. All right, I'll give it a shot. I'll see, see how it goes. I, I didn't even hear about it until you told me about it, so... I can't add much to this, but I will I will give it a shot and report back to you. I mean, listeners, let me know if you thought differently. Like, this just did not work for me. So anyway, what is your chilling obsession, Devin? Let's bring it back on the up and up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My chilling obsession is definitely something more positive. It lets me talk about Junji Ito some more, basically. Um, so my chilling obsession is a YouTube channel. It's called Horror Show Comics. Um now, there, there's a lot of creepypasta uh, YouTube channels where people take creepypastas and they just read them with this, like, audiobook narrator kind of voice or have a couple of people kind of do it as an audio drama. Um, uh, that creepy reading, creeps make pasta, are two to come to mind immediately. Um, Horror Show Comics is a channel that does a similar kind of thing, but it's not with necessarily with creepypastas, and it's not just narration. Um I'm going to say HSC just for simplicity's sake from now on. But yeah, HSC um, provides narrations for a lot of Junji Ito's work on his channel. But there are other ones on there where it's 35, 40-minute videos, but it's it's a reading of the entire story. So I'm not sure if all of the stories in Shiver are on the site, but a lot of his stories are. I know The Hanging Blimp is the one I mentioned earlier because that's where I found Junji Ito to begin with. It shows the panels of the story, and you have uh, HSC's narration. Um, he calls himself the Vault Keeper, I believe. Uh, so you have the Vault Keeper uh, speaking over and doing his narration, talking about the mood, talking about the setting, but like presenting it as it's a story. He doesn't necessarily read the dialogue, but the dialogue is on the screen, so you can see what the characters are saying, but he's telling the story as it goes through, panel to panel, panel to panel, and he sets this kind of tense atmosphere and emotion to the story that isn't there if you're just reading it by yourself the guy is a very natural storyteller if anything i've said about junji ito has piqued your curiosity at all or or even if you already knew him but didn't know about this channel I, i'd recommend go checking out any any of the videos he has on there um they're all done superbly and creepy like this is the closest i've come to a long time of actually being creeped out by a story his his presentation of these stories is is second to none that i found online that's cool. Because when you when you mentioned this to me and you said that he reads Junji Ito's stuff, I was like, yeah, but I feel like there's also a visual element that I'm going to need. But yeah, then you mentioned that he does show the artwork a bit. Yep. Every panel is shown and he, he like talks about what's happening as it's going on. Okay. Even though he's not doing the dialogue, it's still like flowing with the story as you're going through it. So he's painting a picture with his words as well as the images on the screen. I watch a lot of these creepypasta channels and it's 
they're cool and they they do a lot. They put a lot of hard work into it and they're really you know entertaining. But they all pale in comparison to what I see on on horror show comics channel. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at Books in the Freezer.com. We're on Patreon at Books in the Freezer, and I want to take this moment to give a special thank you to our patrons, Laura, Liz, Devin, Sarai, Roger, Emily, Denise, Anthony, Jason, Brad, Leanne, Elizabeth, Sean, Mitch, Alicia, Christopher, Mark, Raina, Tracy, Christy, Julia, David, Agatha, Rachel, Kevin, Lisa, Mac, and PT. Thank you all so much. And if you're looking for a free way to support the podcast, be sure to leave us a review on a podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps people find us. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Instagram at that's what she read with two A's or on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on YouTube at that's what she read. And you can find me on Twitter at InsomniReads and on YouTube as the Indie Insomniac. Thank you for listening and join us next time for Books in the Freezer. (laughs) 